Welcome to Jesus is the Voice of Truth. Cultivating a lifestyle of generosity will transform every aspect of your life, marriage, family, relationship, and your finances. Join Michael Montoya from Jesus for Life Ministries as he reveals the truth to experiencing God's abundance and grace every day. Welcome to Jesus is the Voice of Truth. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to study Revelations chapter 10 and 11. We're going to start with the mighty angel and the little scroll. So turn your Bibles to uh, Revelations chapter 10 and we'll begin. John now sees another mighty angel coming from heaven. So let's read uh, chapter 10 verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in the cloud with a rainbow above his head, his face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. The description leads many to believe that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he had a rainbow on his head, the sign of God's covenant, his face was like the sun, an expression of unveiled glory. His feet were like pillars of fire, the pillars speaking of strength and the fire of judgment. Let's look at chapter 10 verse 2. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He held a little book or a scroll, no doubt a record of impeding judgments. With his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, he claimed his right to worldwide dominance. When he called out with a loud voice, seven thunders sounded. Let's look at Revelations chapter 10, verses 3 and 6. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. Apparently, John could understand the messages of these thunders, but when he was about to write, the angel forbid him. The angel then swore by God, the Creator, that there should be delay no longer. The mystery of God would be fulfilled during the time of the seventh trumpet. Let's look at chapter 10, verse 7. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announces to his servants, the prophets. The mystery of God has to do with God's plan to punish all evildoers and to usher in the kingdom of his Son. Let's look at Revelations 10, uh, verses 8 and 9. Then the voice that I heard from the heavens spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hands of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it, and it will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. John was commanded to eat the little book. That is, he was to read and mediate on the judgment recorded in it. As predicted by the angel, the scroll was sweet as honey in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. Let's look at chapter 10, verse 10. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach turned sour. 
For the believer, it is sweet to read God's determination to glorify His Son where He was once crucified. It is sweet to read the triumph of God over Satan and all His hosts. It is sweet to read the time when the wrongs of the earth will be made right. But there is bitterness also connected with the study of prophecy. There is the bitterness of self-judgment which the prophetic scriptures produce. There is bitterness of viewing the judgment which must soon fall on apostate Judaism and Christendom. And there is the bitterness of contemplating the eternal doom of all who reject the Savior. John was told that he must prophesy again about many people, nation, tongues, and kings. Let's look at chapter 10, verse 11. Then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. The remaining chapters of Revelation fulfill this mandate. Let's look what it says about the two witnesses. John was now commanded to measure the temple and the altar and to number the worshipers. Let's look at Revelation chapter 11 verses 1 and 2. It was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Measuring here seems to carry the idea of preservation. He was not to measure the court of the Gentiles because it was to be trampled by the nations for 42 months and latter half of the tribulation period. The temple mentioned here is the one that will be standing in Jerusalem during the tribulation period. The act of numbering the worshipers may signify that God will preserve a remnant of worshipers for himself. The altar pictures the means by which they approach him, that is, the work of Christ in Calvary. God will raise up two witnesses during the last half of the tribulation period. Let's look at chapter 11, verse 3, And I will appoint two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Clothed in sackcloth, a symbol of mourning, they will cry out against the sins of the people and announce God's coming indignation. The two witnesses are compared to the two olive trees and two lampstands. Let's look at chapter 11, verse 4. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. As olive trees, they are filled with the Spirit, oil. As lampstands, they bear testimony to the truth of God in the day of darkness. For three and a half years, the witnesses are miraculously preserved from harm. Let's look at chapter 11, verse 5. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Fire proceeding from their mouth consumes their foes. And even the efforts to harm them is punished by death. They have power to bring drought on the earth, to turn the waters to blood, and to strike the earth with all plagues. Let's look at chapter 11, verse 6. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. It is not surprising that they have been commonly associated with Moses and Elijah. Because their power to turn the waters of blood and strike the earth with all plagues remind us of Moses when he was in Egypt. The power over fire and weather reminds us of Elijah's ministry. They will harm the people who crowd the temple of the man of sin whom they come to worship. They will admonish him of the shortness of the time of triumph. 
of the coming of Jesus to destroy him, of the perils which the tribulation will bring, of the need of counting not their lives dear unto themselves when the rest of life and death shall come, of their need to fear not him who can kill the body only but to fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell, of the splendor and the nearness of the king and his kingdom after they have suffered a while, of the sureness that if they suffer with him, they shall reign with him, and of the eternal peace, righteousness, and glory that shall be theirs who endure unto the end, even though it may mean martyrdom in the great hour of trial through which they are passing. Mighty indeed will be their testimony from the book. When they finish their testimony, the beast from the bottomless pit will kill them. Let's look at chapter 11, verses 7. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast comes up from the abyss, will attack them and overpower and kill them. The beast seems to be the same one in chapter 13, verse 8, the head of the revived Roman Empire. The dead bodies of the two witnesses lie in the street of Jerusalem for three and one half day. Let's look at chapter 11, verses 8. Their body will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Jerusalem is here called Sodom because of pride, indulgence, prosperous ease, and indifference to the needs of others. And it is called Egypt because of its idolatry, persecution, and enslavement to sin and unrighteousness. People from all nations view their dead bodies, but do not allow them to be buried. A tremendous indignity in almost all cultures. Let's look at chapter 11, verse 9. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. Great rejoicing breaks out because their unpopular prophecies have been silenced and people exchange gifts much as they did today at Christmas time. Chapter 11, verse 10. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormenting those who live on the earth. The only prophets people love are dead ones. After the three and a half days, God raises them from the dead much to the consternation of the populace, and takes them to heaven as their enemies watch. Let's look at Revelations chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and the terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At the same time, Jerusalem is shaken by a great earthquake. One-tenth of the city falls, and the 7,000 people are killed. Revelations chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and the tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. The second woe was past, the third woe is coming. The survivors give glory to God, not genuine worship, but a grudging admission of his power. The second woe is past. This does not mean that everything from chapter 9 verses 13 to chapter 11 verses 13 compromises the second woe. On the contrary, chapter 10 and chapter 11 verses 1 and 13 are a parenthesis between the second woe, which is the sixth trumpet, and the third woe, which is the seventh trumpet. 
Let's look at the seventh trumpet, chapter 11, verses 15 and 19. The blowing of the seventh trumpet reveals that the great tribulation is over and the reign of Christ has begun. Chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Falling on their faces before God, the twenty-four elders expressed thanks to him because he has assumed his great power and inaugurated his reign. Let's look at Revelation chapter 11 verses 16 and 17. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on the thrones before God fell on their face and worshipped him, saying, Give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The unbelieving nation are angry with him and try to prevent his coronation. Let's look at chapter 11, verses 18. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants and prophets and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. But now the time has come for him to be angry with them, to judge those who do not have spiritual life, to destroy the destroyers. And it is time for the Lord to reward his own, prophets and people, small and great. God has not forgotten his covenant with his people, Israel. Let's look at chapter 11, verses 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within the temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumbles, perils of thunder, and earthquake with a severe hailstorm. When the temple of God is opened to heaven, the Ark of the Covenant appears and symbols that all he promised to Israel will come to pass. I'd like to finish by giving everyone a chance to know Jesus better. Make Jesus the Lord of your life. Prayer of salvation is our first real conversation with God. The prayer of salvation is the most important prayer you'll ever pray. When you're ready to become a Christian, you're ready to have our first real conversation with God. And these are the components. We acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God and that he came to the earth as a man in order to live the sinful life that we could not live. That he died in our place so that we would not have to pay the penalty we deserve. We confess our past life of sin, living for ourselves and not obeying God. We admit that we are ready to trust Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. We ask Jesus to come into our heart, take up residence there, and begin living through us. It begins with faith in God. When we pray the prayer of salvation, we're letting God know we believe that His Word is true. By the faith that He has given us, we choose to believe in Him. The Bible tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Hebrews 11.6 So when we pray, Asking God for the gift of salvation, we're exercising our free will to acknowledge that we believe in Him. That demonstration of faith pleases God because we have freely chosen to know Him. We are confessing our sin. When we pray the prayer of salvation, we're admitting that we've sinned. As the Bible says of everyone, saved through Christ alone, for all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. To sin is simply falling short of the mark as an arrow that does not quite hit the bullseye. 
The glory of God that we fell short of is found only in Jesus Christ. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. So the prayer of salvation then recognizes that Jesus Christ is the only human who ever lived without sin. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 What we are doing is we are professing faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. With Christ as our standard of perfection, we're now acknowledging Him as God. Agreeing with the Apostle John that in the beginning was the Word, Jesus Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 because God could only accept a sinless sacrifice because he knew that we could not possibly accomplish that. He sent his son to die for us and pay the eternal price. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's John 3.16. Listen, if you want to say it today and mean it with your heart, don't wait a moment longer to start your new life with Jesus Christ. Remember, this prayer is not a magical formula. You are simply expressing your heart to God. And if you'd like to do that, pray this prayer with me. Father, I know that I have broken your laws and my sins have separated me from you. I am truly sorry and I now want to turn away from my past sinful life towards you. Please forgive me and help me avoid sinning again. I believe that your son, Jesus Christ, died for my sins was resurrected from the dead, is alive, and hears my prayers today. I invite Jesus to become the Lord of my life, to rule and reign in my heart from this day forward. Please send your Holy Spirit to help me obey you and to do your will for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So now you prayed this and you're probably thinking, I prayed it, now what happens? If you prayed this prayer of salvation with true conviction in your heart, you are now a follower of Jesus Christ. This is a fact. Whether or not you feel any different, you are. Some religious systems may lead you to believe that you might feel something like a warm glow, a tingling, or some mystical experience. In fact, you might and you might not. If you have prayed the prayer of salvation and you meant it, you are now a follower of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that your eternal salvation is secure. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's Romans 10.9. So welcome to the family of God. We encourage you to find a local Bible-based church where you can fellowship with other believers and grow in the knowledge of God through his word, the Bible. This ministry is listener-supported. If you feel that you have benefited from this message from God, please consider helping to support this ministry and give a gift of any amount so we can continue to spread the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit on this platform. Go to JesusIsTheVoiceOfTruth.com and may the Lord richly bless you, your family, and friends. Until next time, God bless. And remember, Jesus is the Voice of Truth. I hope you enjoyed today's program. If you have any prayer requests or questions about Jesus is the Voice of Truth, we encourage you to email us at voiceoftruth411 at gmail.com or visit our website at jesusisthevoiceoftruth.com. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to being with you next time. Have a blessed day.